everybody, and welcome to episode five of season two of Mastication Nation, the podcast that still hasn't come up with a witty tagline five episodes into a new season. But you know what? <laughs> there we are. We're back again, stunning regularity. And even though we were, we put out the episode a couple of days late last time, that's that's my fault. Uh, but we did record. We've recorded every other week, every other Sunday, like yeah. like, like like clockwork. How you doing, man? I'm a little, a little hungover. Uh-oh. Yeah. Getting a little delicate. Yeah, but no, that, that, that won't... I'll bring the energy, I promise. No, I think um, basically usually the night before we record these, I sit down after everyone's gone to bed and pull my notes together and have a glass of whiskey. And then I thought, I have Irish whiskey. And it was St. Patty's mm-hmm. Day the other day, and I ended up having a couple glasses of, of that and... Feeling a little, little delicate. I don't think my body's fully adjusted to drinking it uh, at five altitude. And a half thousand, five and a half thousand feet. Yeah, that'll do it. Oh, well, I mean, it's the same as drinking on an airplane, which we discussed in way back in the layovers episode. Yeah, you're basically uh, hypoxic, so you're gonna feel it a little more. I, I, I woke up this morning and I'm like, is it because I'm 35 or because I'm hungover, but my legs hurt? <laughs> Like what? That's dehydration. That's yeah, dehydration. Exactly. That's exactly what it is. Exacerbated by the alcohol. But no, I'm good. Besides that, I'm <laughs> good. 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 Well, I think um, I think it, the the Croatia episode was well received. Uh, it was fun. I think we 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 certainly didn't run out of stuff to talk about. There's so much influence and well, so much deliciousness as well. So it was uh, it was a fun episode, and we got some some great feedback. People are out there just loving it. Yeah, uh, Zan at Z. Mark N. I yeah, Zan Mark N. Okay, then you should have said that. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I mean, he's a longtime Mastication Nation listener and Layovers listener. I guess it's just I a good seen dude. In a while. Um, yeah. Hey, Mastication, Mastication Nation, love the Croatia episode. Solid representation and ample Slovenia mentions. Uh, been there so many times from before it was cool, even <laughs> during the more explosive years while, uh, years while Istra was secured. I didn't even go into any of that sort of the more recent border conflicts, but yeah, I completely spaced on that. Yeah. That's worth exploring uh, just from a, you know, if you're a history person at all, or just generally interested in humanity, that's, that does a very interesting period that we sort of glossed over in our collective consciousness, I think. Yeah. But then Zan nicely tagged up on our Belgian episode in his next comment. He said, uh, muscles a la, Bazura, I'm probably butchering that, are the Adriatic style of muscles and way better than anything in Belgium. Fight me, in parentheses. <laughs> um, I think I'd like to know has, Zan why, why they're better. Yeah, why, why, do they, why are they better? Uh, then he goes on to say truffles in Istria are world class, basically exported everywhere in the world, mostly Italy. We talked about this a while back on our olive oil episode. Italy has a really bad habit of taking other people's produce and then slapping a made in Italy tech sticker on it um, and saying it's theirs. Like, what would you say? Like 90% of Europe's olive oil comes from Spain and Spain. Yeah. yeah and it's just like then remarketed as a blended Italian. Um, and then he mentioned that uh, uh, Burek is ace. I'm not sure if Greg would agree with us. Uh, best 2 a.m. food known to, uh, to humankind. My fave is the one with mincemeat, though, which is, yeah, I think the big the big disconnect there for you guys. That, yeah, that sounds good. And actually, um, Greg reminded me after we t- after that episode that he had found one. Perhaps I even mentioned this in the, in the episode that he had found one 
uh, here in London that that it was a like a feta mm. riff on a feta thing that was really really good. But yeah, mince meat sounds good. I think the I think it was the cottage cheese honestly that uh, <laughs> that threw us off. I just I'm not a massive cottage cheese fan on the best of days, but it's good to know that uh, perhaps we need to to have another go a and different it, variety. Yeah, exactly. And he mentioned uh, if you're craving. Sev uh, Appi, or however you pronounce it, the the uh, sort of burger of that region. It's mm. a very regional thing, as we mentioned, but there's a decent uh, London shop that sells it from Frozen in Ealing, mm. apparently. So um, I, I was so funny. I was watching, I just had Diners Drive-In Diners Drive and Dives on in the background, and it, they went to a Albanian place and the guy was making it for, for, for the guy was making it for guy. The chef was making it for guy. And he was like, this is our hamburger. This was like, you know, bread, mincemeat, onions, you know, on the go, drunk person food. And I was like, oh, okay. Guess it's represented everywhere. And you can probably find it anywhere that there's a Eastern European slash Balkans region of the U.S., which for me, yeah. I guess, is more the Chicago, Northwest, uh, Northeast area. So in the Midwest as well. But yeah, uh, Zan, thank you so much for the the in depth. I'm gonna hit you up with some some uh, some more questions, especially on the muscles. But thank you so much for the input. Yeah, that was good stuff, and and, and we should uh, retweet that thread because it's just full of of gems for the next time we're all able to go back to Croatia and the broader Adriatic region. Speaking of Adriatic, I was just watching Porco Rosso, which is a Studio Ghibli movie with my kids today, and that's a beautiful representation of the Adriatic. Go watch it. It's great. It's about a pig that flies airplanes. Um, Excellent. Yeah, of course. Uh, we should touch back on our Belgium episode because mm-hmm. Adam Nowak, who we talked about in the Croatia episode, had tagged us and said, hey, we were a little harsh about Belgium beers. And we replied in the episode and pointed you guys towards his great... Ex-Matica expatica article mm-hmm. and he said he came back and said uh, sorry if i seemed cantankerous i just love belgian beer if i can make recommend a great podcast uh at belgian smack s-m-a-a-k i guess that's how it's pronounced i think it is is fantastic uh most of the episodes are on beer but there's a great show episode 18 about Whitloof, which is the belgian endive so we'll ret- retweet that I-, I haven't had a chance to check out the episode yet but i'm looking forward to it yeah absolutely uh, and then lastly, our brother Andrew. Uh, every once in a while, I'll log into the Mastication Nation Twitter uh, account, and it'll be people replying, you know, f- to our previous episodes or people showing us what they've eaten. But without doubt, there'll be maybe every couple of weeks just a at mention of us to something either horrific or insane from our brother andrew and he uh he he just added us on dan walker who is the uh the sports pundit turned i think he's daytime morning show host in england uh giant yorkshire pudding with chips and gravy equals perfect birthday lunch and there's a photo of a very large uh yorkshire pudding in a um in a styrofoam container with proper chip shop uh chip shop chips smothered in gravy which is probably the most northern thing i've ever seen in my life does that does it sound appealing to you i think if i was drunk yes it's kind of like poutine without the cheese curds in its own bowl like an I edible i was thinking bowl. i would need a i i'd need a protein with that. I get what you're the, saying. Yeah, like like I'd shredded pork or carby bacon. for me. Yeah, and I love my carbs. So, but yeah, <laughs> nice nice catch, Andrew. Good work. 
<laughs> yeah, he's doing, he's doing, he's going out there and, uh, and finding the abominations uh, that food people are committing. Um, but yeah, keep if you if there, if there's weird stuff in your country you're seeing your celebrities like getting into, send them our way and we'll, yeah, we'll rank them for us. you. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. <laughs> so, uh, so uh, Alex, what are you? What sorry? What's the best thing you've eaten since last recording? And now that we're only doing these every two weeks, we have these short windows to try and yeah. And again, of course, we're not we're not traveling. Um, I had a five and a half pound slab of bone-in pork belly in the freezer. Um, and I defrosted it a couple of days ago and I cooked it um, in a very simple rub. Nigel, I think maybe I've talked about this. Nigella Lawson has this recipe for slow-cooked pork belly, which you create this slurry. In fact, I'm very sure I did, but it's a slurry of tahini lemon juice, lime juice, soy sauce. And you create this, this, like I said, a slurry, and you whisk it all up so it's kind of emulsified. And then you put the pork belly in a roasting pan that's very snug, so it just barely fits, and so that this this paste or goo or whatever comes up to the, up the sides of it. And you let it sit overnight, and then I, you cook it at like 140 degrees centigrade for about six hours. And then you blast it for another half an hour at about you know two forty. Uh, I actually put a little bit of like maybe a cup of water in there as well because you mm. cook it. Um, uh, I have a fan oven and you cook it uh, uncovered. So I like to have a little bit of moisture circulating there, and out comes this glorious you know juicy fall. You know you pull the rib bones out really easily. Um, and then this just giant scab of crackling, <laughs> um, and we made we made tacos out of it. But it was it just it's so easy. Pork belly is so cheap and so readily available. I'd never seen it in that you know size before. At least you know not in the supermarket, but it's Costco, so I shouldn't be surprised. But it's so. I mean, and then the next day, like you make you make nachos with it, or you make I've made. Um, like noodles um, and just throwing in the like the, the, the pulled pork with it uh, after you fry it up a little bit. So yeah, just it was it was a really satisfying, easy, scalable meal. Um, this but is I, the problem. I love it and that recipe is good. This is the problem for me. There's only two and a half people in the house, and so I can yes. never do these large scale format things. So I can't wait until I can have people over and, and do experiments on you know something like the pork belly. Uh, but that sounds that sounds amazing. Yeah, um, it was it was great. What about you? So, uh, so first of all, uh, last weekend, good. We were recording on the in between weekends because last weekend we were hit with the fourth largest snowstorm in Colorado history. Uh, oh, wow! And Welcome I've only, to the state. Exactly. I've only just moved here, and it was just like, here you go. Here's tw- here's twenty seven inches of snow in one day. Uh, and so, you know, we were sort of, we bought, we, we did a bit of a, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, a, a rations run, uh, a supply drop a couple days before, uh, as my coworkers were like, Hey, well, have you done your, your stock up yet? I'm like, Oh wow. Okay. You guys are taking this seriously. So for like a week, we were just like going through the things that could be stored or frozen. And then, you know, that was fine. But yesterday I needed to do a proper shop again. And I was like, ah. 
I want some red meat. I don't cook steak that often anymore, you know, trying to be healthy. And there was a sale at Whole Foods on flat iron steak, which mm-hmm. is called something else everywhere else around the world. So in England, it's called uh, feather blade steak, which I would never have bought and wouldn't even know what that was. And then in Oz, New Zealand, it's called the oyster blade steak. And oh, when I, I hadn't heard that. Yeah. When I when I when I see it, when I bought it, I I confused myself and thought it looks exactly like a babette, like a, a traditional, um, you know, bistro style, like long, thin uh, French style steak. When I was like, that's exactly what I want. I want something, you know, traditional, classic that I can whip up a, a chimney, not a chimichurri, a gremolata or a compound butter with. And I got it home and I looked it up. I was like, ah, crap. But it actually turned out perfectly. Um, unlike a bavette or a hanger steak or uh, a flank steak, those all come from the underneath of the cow, like the flank area of the cow. The the flat iron steak actually comes up from the, the shoulder, from, from the chuck primal. Um, and so it's actually incredibly like tender for what you think is a very very aggressive working area of the of the of the cow and so if you cook it hot fast like a bistro style and then cut it against the grain you do get a really really good uh steakhouse experience for a fraction of the cost so we did that last night with some roast fingling potatoes and some asparagus and then i made a quick compound butter with parsley lemon juice lemon zest and chili flake and that was really really satisfying very impressive. Do you have a Very like a, a go-to under the radar steak cut that like you know? Yes, you can go with your porterhouse, but you know one that you you go to that's maybe a little bit off the radar. Uh, well, bavette is is something that uh, I I usually get um, for if I'm making tacos or something like that. Um, and not every butcher seem, here seems to know it. But I mean, I don't eat a whole lot of beef anymore. Um, right. To be completely honest, and if I'm in the U.S. or somewhere that's got good beef, um, although I have noticed the quality of the beef here is getting better, mm. um, I usually go for a well mar- marbled ribeye. Frankly, yeah, I mean um, that's that's a good a good shout. I I, I want people to, you know, sh- like the 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 concept of cutting your um, tenderloin with a spoon while impressive is kind of pointless because you know it's got no flavor. There I said yeah. it. Um, so I rarely do, do tenderloins, usually do something that may be a little bit more beefy in flavor, but yeah, I'm with you. I'm not eating as much beef these days for a numerous number of reasons, but what I do, I like the flavor. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. I mean, that's why you get it for God's sakes. Exactly. Well, I, I see a note here in our, in our notes as I suppose where, where one would find them that you might have got it yourself a new cookbook. Yes. Yeah. Good catch. Um, so Kenji, just a throwaway comment posted about um, this book written by a friend of his, and it's uh, Flavors of the Southeast Asian Grill, Classic Recipes for Seafood and Meat Cooked, Seafood and Meat Cooked Over Charcoal by Leela, I'm going to butcher this because Southeast Asian names are hard for me, uh, Panyarati Banduha. So mm. uh, just look up Flavors of the Southeast Asian Grill. I jumped on Amazon and it had like 15 reviews on Amazon. So it's still like a hidden gem. I'm sure since Kenji um, posted about it, it's now got lots and lots of reviews. 
what I found is the weather's going to get better, although it is snowing right now. Um, and I've kind of got the, the vibe that, as I've mentioned in previous episodes, Southeast Asian and certain Asian cuisines are going to be tougher to come by in Colorado mm. than they were in California. So I figured I'm going to have to learn how to make a lot of this stuff myself. And that's why I grabbed it. I can't grill in my current location, but there are some workarounds in here. And there's just like some really, really interesting recipes that I have already skimmed through, like um, Penang beef skewer uh, saute and lemongrass whole uh, roast chicken. There's another one where you roast the chicken in hay, which looks really fun and interesting. Some fantastic shrimp and fish recipes, but sort of that really good lemongrass chili, um, you know, Vietnamese Thai layout uh, flavors that I'm very interested to see if I can replicate in the, in the home kitchen. So definitely check it out. I'll sort of maybe post as I work my way through this cookbook, but it felt like a good purchase at the time. And it seems like a, seems like it's got a good, got a few good recipes in there. Yeah. Well, fantastic. I'm looking forward to hearing about uh, what you find in it and what you prepare and what's a hit and what's a miss. And also, you know, oh, if it's got, a, sorry, if it's I full... just realized, sorry. Uh, they have a, it has a, has a, um, what do you call these things when they got blurbs by other people? Blurb. Um, yeah. So blurb on the back by Aaron Franklin of all people of Franklin's oh, wow. barbecue. So that is that's praise from Caesar indeed. Exactly. Basically saying you've got to try this. It's brimming with recipes geared for anyone's backyard. Leela's years of eating, cooking, and writing have come together in harmonious balance of simplicity and complexity. Nice. Well, I, I, that is a, a strong endorsement if I've ever heard one. Exactly. So, what are you drinking? Uh, I am fairly obviously back on the sauce. Um, <laughs> in moderation, healthily, constructively, and at peace. Yep. Um, <laughs> so, I have a friend uh, around here called Bud, Bud Couchet. And um, top guy, really just he lives on the same lane as our granny. And he's just super 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 nice bud was one of the founders of um fine and rare which is a wine company here in the uk that specializes in believe it or not fine and rare wine um and they can get seemingly anything he left a few years ago took some time off uh, but just started his own wine curation and sourcing company called couche and co and we bumped into him, our other brother, Andrew, and I bumped into him on a walk of about a month and a half ago, and he told us of this new venture, and he's like, I'll throw you guys together a box if you kind of let me know what your jam is. And we're like, how about this? We'll, we'll, we'll give you a budget, and just, you know, you guide me. You guide me. <laughs> um, and he did. Like, he produced this case, which Andrew and I split, of just, you know, drinkable like now, like you're not going to have to wait for 40 years for it to become drinkable uh, stuff. And I'm drinking one of them now. Uh, it is a Chateau Saint-Jacques 2011 that I haven't actually tried yet. But the other two bottles, Andrew and I have both tried them over the last few weeks, have been incredible. There's a 2005 Bordeaux, which neither of us are going to open up yet. But um, <laughs> this is a, a Medoc um, red, and it's... It's, it's delicious. It's absolutely stunning. So, oh, Bud's, so Bud is, uh, it's Couchet & Co., which is C-U-C-H-E-T uh, .co.uk. Check him out. Throw him some business. Uh, you cannot go wrong. He's just a, he's a genius. Absolute genius. So, yeah, that's that's what's wetting my whistle. 
Are you, is it main, the box that you have, is it mainly French reds? It's all French reds by, by order of our brother. Um, and he, he is, but is, is French and he's very, very, very British, but he's a French heritage. Uh, and his specialty is in, uh, is in French wine. So follow Makes him sense. on Instagram, Bud, Bud Couchet, B-U-D-C-U-C-H-E-T on Instagram. He's always posting, uh, what he's drinking and with his, with his thoughts in a, in a sort of, you know, bloody delicious type of way, as opposed to, you know, hints of nutmeg and allspice and Febreze, <laughs> you know, that type of, th- of stuff. Um, but, uh, yeah. What do you, what do you, uh, well, in a in, hungover in, Sunday? Well, I, I am suffering for, for you, for you all. Um, and in a lovely, I guess, uh, twist of serendipity, I'm drinking champagne, but oh, the champagne of beers. Ah, nice. Yeah. Miller I'm, High Life. I'm drinking Miller High Life um, for those outside of the U.S. I, I wanted to sort of play on the, the you know, in, Belgi- in the Belgian episode, I drank Stella. I was going to do the whole sort of beers that have had a bad rap and then have just completely just taken ownership of their own marketing and lent into mm-hmm. it. And and Miller High Life is a classic. It, back in the 70s and 80s, it was kind of seen as, you know, a bit dirty and a bit um, nefarious, I guess. Um, you know, bad people drank Miller High Life. They've, they're, they're, like, their ad campaigns now are, you know, there's one from a couple of years ago where it's a voiceover saying, I only eat at the, the fancies of restaurants. I only drink the best wines. I only, you know... Um, uh, hang out with the leaders of their industries, blah, blah, blah. And while that's all going on, the video is like a guy eating a dirty pizza, a guy, you know, hanging out with some reprobates outside of a bar, you know, that kind of thing. And their, and their tagline, it says on the thing, the champagne of beers. It's Miller. So if you've had a Miller, you know what it's like. It's not going to blow you away. But I am drinking the fact that it comes in a 24-ounce can is kind of representative of the kind of beer it is. But it's a classic. Yeah. Nice. It is a classic. And you're right. I love their their marketing. Um, it just tastes so much better than any of the light beers in America. Well, good. We are lubricated appropriately um, on this Sunday evening. And le- we're, we're kind of cheating a little bit with this episode, but I think yes. with good cause, and I think it will be completely justified. We had a long discussion about all of the companies that are companies, Country. countries that start with D. And there's some interesting ones. Um, the Dominican Republic in- intrigued us both, but neither of us had been there. And I think we sort of both felt that if we neither of us had been to this these countries, that it might be dangerous territory. Literally, um, all I can and- tell you about the Dominican Republic, it is one of two Latin American countries where baseball is more popular than soccer. And that is the end of my knowledge. <laughs> yeah, I, I really do think, I mean, that we were in, and then, you know, you know, Denmark, and that would have been, you know, Europe uh, again, um, the, you know, the, the continent of Europe, and, and, and Djibouti, neither of us had been to. <laughs> we found some, some interesting little islands in, the, in, in France and a few others. But one of the things that I sort of hesitantly suggested is, what about Dubai? Which I appreciate is not a country, it is, it is an emirate of the United Arab Emirates, but it is of such cultural magnitude and stature that I feel 
and so unique culinarily that I feel well, we, we felt could be easily represented in its own episode. So we're doing it and screw you guys if you don't like it. <laughs> I think it, yeah, I, I don't think it was a cop out. We definitely wanted to not do three Europe episodes in a row. Um, and Dubai is somewhere that we both have been to and mm-hmm. have long connections from there, which we'll get onto the, 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 uh, sort of why it is where it is and the kind of people that moved there. Um, it, it made sense. And I think given you sort of alluded to it, it's unique global position in the world right now over the last 20 years. Um, it really is just a clearinghouse for a lot of things that we want to talk about for just yeah. international food. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a, it really is a strange place. I've spent a lot of time there uh, over the last, you know, five to 10 years. I like it very much, but it's, you know, if you're, it's, it's in the Persian Gulf or Arabian Gulf. It's got, well, as a country, the UAE is surrounded by some very interesting neighbors. Yeah. Yeah. You've got, uh, you've got Oman, Oman to the right, east, southeast, east, uh, Saudi to the south, and then Qatar kind of, there's that little bit you're not connected by, but it's really like from a, from a trade route, Qatar is like right there, or Qatar, however you want to pronounce it. Um, and those are interesting. And then across the, the Persian Gulf, you've got a, a number of other countries, but as a country of itself, United Arab Emirates, it, its history was really sort of um, fast forwarded, even in the sort of last three, like 200, 300 years. Um, I didn't know this, but like, obviously the British trying to control most of the, of the globe and India being their big sort of powerhouse during a lot of the colonial times, they needed to maintain the routes between the two points of their, of their empire. And there was a huge issue with piracy in the Persian Gulf. Um, mm-hmm. And so the British maintained, um, they, they wanted to maintain the Royal Fleet and not have it be plundered or destroyed by pirates. So they struck up a uh, relationship with the uh, Al Maktoum family for safe harbor for their, uh, for their, for their fleet, which is the same ruling family that is in, is in charge of, of, uh, of the UAE now, um, the Al Maktoum uh, sheiks. Um, and so it was interesting because it had no real, its strategic value was limited until this sort of relationship came along. And even after that, it was just a stopover point for a lot of the colonialism. Um, well, interestingly, I think uh, that's right. But, but for the Imperial Airways London to Australia route, they actually stopped at Sharjah. Which was a which was more developed at the time had its a, a fort and a functioning airstrip um, and Sharjah is the next is 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 one of their Emirati neighbors it's the mm-hmm. next Emirate which is completely different to Dubai it's like Dubai was thirty years ago which was sort of a desert outpost still whereas Dubai is this as everybody knows is this this extraordinary twisted glass and metal you know but there was futurescape. The, it was all the brainchild of one person who is it was the father of the current leader the current uh, al-maktoum family the guy's dad 
back in the 60s because it was like basically a fishing village back in the day mm -hmm. and um he toured the sort of great cities of europe and fell in love specifically with london and loved the, the public transportation back in you know just back in the 60s uh and then came back and then hired a bunch of people and was like Let, let's try and build something as a world capital in in the middle east and everyone sort of laughed at him because there was nothing there there was no reason for it beyond being a refueling stop they found oil in the 60s but based on other areas in the in the region's oil supplies it was minuscule and they the, the ruling family realized that it was not going to be a huge amount so did not base their entire development on that quickly changed to urban development and uh tour tourism in the 70s and sort of building this economic freedom zones these low taxation or no taxation place and one said we're not going to be oil forever let's get some of the big business people in there and so by the 70s he's really pushing that idea forward which his son then took up you know and went gangbusters with from like the early 2000s on you know he was massive on making sure that there was a like as other areas saw that the, uh, the the gateway to the world was the oceans. Uh, the Maktoum, Al Maktoum family saw it was aviation, and that's where they put a lot of their money in logistics. Yeah, and so aviation, well, at least pre-COVID, made up uh, nearly thirty percent of Dubai's GDP, which is a, a staggering uh, contribution. Dubai is the way it is because imagine that you all of a sudden just hyperspeed a, uh, a small fishing village slash town slash then city uh, into what everybody knows it is now as the most hypermodern place, you know, in the world. You need people. There weren't people there to build, to live, to maintain this. And that's why D the UAE as a whole Emirati citizens only make up about 20%, but Dubai is even less than that. It's sub 10% of the population are, are um, Emiratis. And we won't get into sort of like how difficult it is to become a, to become a real fully fledged citizen of, of the Emirates. It's, it's very, very difficult. But given the regions that they're around and also the kind of nations that send um, people to work on on developing you know infrastructure there's a huge the largest populations outside of emiratis uh even bigger than emiratis sorry are indian pakistani filipino and iranian which obviously color the food and drink we're going to be talking about everything that we're going to talk about every other dish is influenced by their neighbors there's not much i found that was uniquely uae and dubai based no, uh, and that which is uniquely Emirati at the very least is old, yes, um, and very traditional. But what you know, one of the when you spend time in Dubai, not just for leisure and you and but but for work or for for whatever other reasons, you start to see the strata of culture mm -hmm. cultures in in Dubai. Dubai, it's 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 most obvious in Dubai, but it's throughout. Abu Dhabi and Dubai because they're by far the wealthiest of the of the Emirates, and you have clear social classes and and cultural classes, and there's a little bit of overlap, um, but generally there are you know there are Indian conclaves, conclaves Pakistani, Filipino, and they are what power Dubai from a just pure you know workmanship. 
Uh, it's not something that Dubai talks about enough, um, and I, I think they're massively underrepresented. They don't always have the best living and working conditions. But what they did bring with them is their is their food culture, and because, as you say, they represent such a huge amount of the population, not only their food culture, but there are so many restaurants and food trucks and you know everything in between to feed those communities that you have very good authentic representations of those foods throughout Dubai, not just you know, uh, not just uh, in, in, in Filipino town or Chinatown or whatever. They're just mm -hmm. everywhere and they're incredibly cheap. But and that's the thing. I think everyone, if you were to ask the average person on the street, when you say, oh, uh, when you think of Dubai and food, what do you think of? They're going to think of um, the most ridiculous high end thing that like Heston Blumenthal or Gordon. Like Ramsay's. Vegas. Exactly. Exactly. Like Vegas. And just like Vegas, you'll see people who are passing through uh, Dubai, grabbing a Starbucks while hitting the inside snow slopes, uh, then driving, you know, their their Ferrari down the street. That is mm -hmm. a misrepresentation of what 90% of the people in Dubai population yeah. wise, not Emiratis, but like, you know, how they're eating and but, how they're living. Exactly. I mean, I think for me, it's like going to it's going to Vegas and saying, I don't want to eat where the high rollers eat. I want to eat where the janitor eats. Yeah. You know? Yeah, exactly. He's no, um, because he's it's just, where it is. Yeah. It's the same. It's the same. I mean, I'm kind of casting very with broad strokes here, but you look around Dubai and you will see and smell every type of food. I mean, you, you have here in the notes that Dubai is the world's largest mall food court, which I, mm -hmm. I love because it works on so many levels. You have all of these representations and they are available in in uh, in old Dubai as well, especially which is where the majority of these um, uh, expat but not Western expat uh, people live. The diaspora of India. the diaspora, yeah, exactly. India, Pakistani, Filipino, Iranian. Sri Lankans. That was a big one as well. Yeah, Bangladeshi uh, as as well. Um, and you you know you can go and you can you can get all of these things, but what you also have at the food court level is this bizarre mishmash of global food brands because Dubai is such a uh, a global nexus it's not asian it's not european it's not american it's and it's frankly not really that middle eastern anymore mm. it's all of those things and so you can go into uh, the mall of the emirates or or places like that and there's the chilies and that's next to a Costa, and that's mm -hmm. next to a Jolly Bee, the Filipino chicken, which is next to an M&S, a Shake Shack, a Baja. I mean, not even the good, the good ones that you think could escape the, you know, the the gravitational pull of where they're from. Like, you know, somewhere like Shake Shack is good. Baja Fresh. I mean, when was the last time you jonesed for Baja Fresh? Never. We Never. actually used to have like one in the basement of the building I used to work in, and no one ever went in there. No one goes to Baja Fresh, but then like even Kenny Rogers Roaster, like that did well for a while there. So if you needed the roaster, that's where you went. But it's it's you know so you have that you have the the Heston Blumenthal, the Gordon Ramsay doing their thing because there's money to be made. Then at the bottom you have not the bottom, but you know this this strata of cheap, affordable food of the people no matter where the people are from. 
and then this weird beige middle, middle streak you know and you can get like and the and the the strange uh kind of anomaly to all of this is that you get all those brands all those foods with no pork yeah yeah so I, if, I, I, yeah i mean I, yeah you want to tell the story about din tai fung well i would say i mean you know so you go you know you want to get a bacon cheeseburger from uh carl's jr or or um what the hell is it called on the east coast or hardy's hardy's god that's driving me crazy You'll get your bacon, but the bacon will be either beef bacon, usually beef bacon, turkey bacon. My kids love Din Tai Fung um, because we've been to it in Hong Kong a million times and they love it and they absolutely love it. And they have in, is it the Mall of the Emirates, I think? I can't remember. Um, they have a Din Tai Fung. Great, fantastic. No line will go in there. It's a, it's a surefire winner. Order everything, all of the dumplings that we love, and they bite into it. And I think my son Jack started crying <laughs> because uh, I was like, "What's wrong, buddy?" He's like, "It tastes weird." So I take a bite of it. And I'm like, "Oh, it's it's lamb. Yeah. It's not pork." See, I was reading this article, and it was it was basically a defense of Dubai and specifically Dubai um, because. Again, I, can't, I I apologize for not knowing the guy's name, but the father of the current ruler, um, and and very much of the the current ruler as well. Um, compared to other states in, again, I'm not going to defend everything that Dubai does, but compared to other states in the region, other countries in the region, um, they're very progressive. They're very sort of. And one of the things he he put forward was um, that all religions are welcome in some variety as long as you're not trying to overthrow the current, you know, laws. Um, and what that the, the article was defending was that there was a New York Times piece saying in doing such and becoming such a like a clearinghouse for the world, they've lost any semblance of who they are and a connection to the Middle East. And I think that they, what, what you sort of said with the Strasses is, yes, at the top level, consumerism and capitalism have led to shitty you know, chains just ruling it. And everyone's like, oh, yeah, I can get a double cheeseburger anywhere in Dubai now. And that is not representative of the of the region. But what you do have and what has become, and I think any Dubai, uh, Emirati may be proud to say, is that you have these uh, mishmashes of Indian meets classic Dubai food or Emirati food or biryani, you know, with local fish or whatever it might be that is outside of the malls, outside of the five, seven, six, seven star hotels that has become this new, it's almost like Singapore, how it's become this melding of a non-commoditized form of food, which is where you should be looking. And it was a really interesting article as far as like trying to defend that. Um, I, you can't defend, you know, snowboarding in a mall in the middle of a desert, but you can defend, you know, good local um work you know blue collar food yeah uh, absolutely and i i don't hate dubai there's a lot about dubai i don't like but i don't hate it i don't i don't you know resent like having to go Vegas. there i think yeah there's so much about it i mean I, I i when i was researching this my contributions to this episode you always do so much of the work but I went back and I f I'd forgotten that I'd made this stupid little vlog about a trip I took there and mm -hmm. I spent most of my time in in old Dubai, um, because I just like it there. I think it's just more representative of the Middle East, and I really like the Middle East. 
But I also like the fact that I'm like, man, you know, if I if you live there, you can, as you say, get get anything, any food you want, and it will be a, a reasonable representation, if not a perfect representation, of whatever it is you're jonesing for. Should we should we dive into some of the more uh, interesting foods of note? You know, you can get your yeah. double double stack well, cow tipper or whatever. Yes, but I, I want to touch back really quickly before we do that on the whole pork thing mm. in in Dubai, um, and it varies around the Muslim world and in, in the in the Gulf regions of of course. Despite you know common misconception is that it is illegal. It's not illegal. It's just hard to find. Mm -hmm. It's not out on the shelves in a predominantly Muslim country, but you can find it. There is a wait, big ass waitrose in again one of the big malls, and there is a um, a section at the back. Is a separate room with the alcohol and a separate room with with pork products. You can get it. So it's it's not illegal. It's just it's just harder to find. Um, and you can only serve it in certain restaurants and that that type of thing. So it's it's worth mentioning that. But yeah, let's yeah, let's talk you, about hey, some of these wonderful dishes. One, one one thing I was like, if you if you came from the south of America and know like and dealt with the fact that you can't buy alcohol on Sunday because you know them's the laws, you can deal with mm -hmm. going to the back of a supermarket and asking for your pork. <laughs> like it's mm -hmm. not that hard. Yeah, and I mean, yeah, exactly, exactly. So and when there's so many other wonderful dishes like. Well, the ones we're about to talk about, you know, your, yeah, your so, pork jonesing is going to disappear. Really <laughs> the, the, the sort of the one I wanted to start with, which I think is, is appropriate for a couple of reasons, because it seems in my research, it, it's the Middle East version of what almost all world cultures have, which is their base starch, their base, um, I don't want to call it like, uh, um, whatever we consider mashed potatoes to be to us or the Italians consider polenta to be to them. Uh, haris, which have you ever had haris before? Yes, it's like, well, grits. Yeah, it's a, it's a porridge, but it's normally made with wheat. And what they do is they soak it overnight and then simmer it with different seasonings. And in some variations I've seen, they boil chicken with it as well and then sort of macerates the chicken to a point where it's indistinguishable in the porridge and then you get funky with the uh with the accoutrement like the the sides you'll put like fried onions on top of it or you'll put um different meats on top of it or seasonings and it's very similar to like i said like grits in the south um porridge in the uk or savory porridge um fufu in in west africa um and where you know where i grew up in south africa i would always get really like i I'd go to these parties or these these barbecues like all oh, right they've got mashed potatoes take a big mouthful of it and it was pap which is their version of uh a meal pap it's it's made from corn it's like a corn meal I'm like god this isn't what i thought it was but every culture <laughs> has their version of this which yeah. is like your building block and that's what you would have as your as your filler um i haven't had it knowingly but i'm sure i've had it yeah, no, I'm sure you have too. It's it's all over the Middle East, and also like, as far you know, up into the to to Europe as well. Um, yeah, that you can find. And it's it's ancient, like very you, similar. But yeah, it's been in cookbooks back to the 10th century. It's you know back when Iraq and that whole area was sort of the center of the 
learned world, like where they were doing all the great libraries and the writings. There are multiple cookbooks from the 13th century where this this is referenced multiple times. So you're talking from like Iraq all the way west to like um, to like Turkey and then down into into North Africa as well. So when I when I was looking for like what is defined as the national dish of, of UAE, nobody had an answer. Everyone, some people said Harris or however you want to pronounce it. Other people had biryani, and that one's a dangerous one because everybody, if you want to get into a fight, put an Iranian and a North Indian person in the room and say who invented biryani, and they'll, mm. one, no one will come out alive. Um, it, like, so a, a rice dish, so moving away from the sort of porridge style, a rice dish is so central to Emirati um, sort of uh, festivals and feasts. And there are three main ones that came up that are that are very very common in Dubai, but it's it's I guess it's almost like heritage as to where your family originally came from as to which one you consider the most um, uh, legitimate. And they are called mandi, kabsa, and biryani. Mandi mm -hmm. is from Yemen and is like a a rice dish, you know, very like a biryani with, with saffron in it. And, you know, it's your building block for roast meats and, and all great fun stuff like that. Biryani, we all know what that is. You've had it in Indian restaurants. But the one that I found most interesting and found the most sort of like travel websites talking about for Dubai was kabsa, which is originally from Saudi. It is the national dish of Saudi Arabia. And mm -hmm. in, unlike the other two, which usually have more of a golden yellow hue, there's one's a bit more brown, a bit more um, stock colored um, due to the fact that there is a meat broth, um, which also contains tomato paste and chilies. And the word kabsa comes from the Arabic word to squeeze. And the reason being is that all those items were put into one pot and squeezed into the pot and sort of cooked like that, like a stew, which again gives that brown, that brown color. But you can't see it, but I, I have a picture, and it's like this mound of, of rice that you would usually see in a lot of places where they do rice dishes. But then they have all the meat that was on top of it, um, almonds on top of it, and then they go ham with the, the sultanas and the, and the you know, dried, dried fruits that are very, very common in that kind of cuisine. Um, and it looks like just the best stodgy food in the world. Um, but obviously, I'm sure you've it had does look a rice, really good. a rice, uh, many rice dishes in in Dubai. I mean, that's the great thing about Dubai. Uh, you know, again, especially in old Dubai, is you go, uh, you know, into any of these restaurant restaurants. One of my favorites is Al Usted Special Kebab. <laughs> I always make a point to go there. It is, uh, and actually, I'm going to mention her later, but I might as well mention her now. Arva, my friend Arva from um, Frying Pan Adventures, she was in our Dubai episode long ago but uh she runs this food tour and food blog called frying pan adventures wonderful lady runs it with her sister incredibly knowledgeable effervescent uh i met her there with her husband when i took my kids to dubai a few years ago and i i go back every time i'm in dubai now and they have this wonderful variant of, of biryani and so does the place next door and across the street they are well all compared to what we you and i and perhaps everybody listening to this has been exposed to they're they're all phenomenal they're all just delicious variants and you may be having re really what you may be having is 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 mandy or capsa or indeed a biryani but generally they're just going to be fantastic hmm. yeah and actually tagging up on on her on on um frying pan adventures 
in your in your Dubai episode, um, she took you to get uh, lokma, which was the mm-hmm. the fried fried dough balls. Fried dough. I, s- I swear, every you know society has some form of of yes. Holes. She she took us to this place called Bet Al Kadim. Um, I'm very sure I didn't pronounce that properly, but it basically means the old house in Arabic. And it was a traditional restaurant. And one of the things that they, one of the many wonderful things they made us was, was, was lokma, which I think um, uh, is, ba- is, is based on the Arabic word lukma, which means like bite, mm-hmm. like, you know, like a, like a, you know, just bite or morsel or something. But yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's yeah, it's this it's this uh, leavened dough. It's basically like a fried donut hole. Yeah. And then you soak it in in syrup or honey. It's not a million miles away from um, from like gulab jamun in in Indian um, mm-hmm. cuisine, but uh, yeah. And then they sometimes they sprinkle sesame seeds on them. Uh, or, or, but it was yeah, just just so good, so good. <laughs> I don't know, like yes, I know that it does not. It, Dubai has colder months, but I don't know if I want fried hot dough when it's fifty degrees Celsius outside. I guess it's no. a breakfast thing, so you have it in the morning. Yeah, I, well, I think it's just a yeah, it's one of those just wonderful things that you that you crave for nightly. But uh, yeah, it was it was wonderful. <laughs> yeah, I think. Um, Back to uh, the episode where Greg sat in for me and you guys talked about the best things you know in the attache travels. Uh, Greg mentioned this and you mentioned this as well as being one of your favorite things that you try and recreate but just cannot get right because of the regional uh, mm. ingredients that you need. And this is such a perfect example of, you know, uh, not just the existing um, local neighbors, but the new uh, immigrants into the country as well your the your your breakfast sandwich as it is yeah so this was uh, yeah not only did greg mention it but we also when we did our last year our top five street food episode of attache it came up as well for and completely warranted as well yeah this omani breakfast roll we spent half a day with arva and, but we spent half of that half a day looking for these crisps. And when Greg and I, after, you know, about 40 minutes of wandering <laughs> through these, this, this, this rabbit warren of old Dubai, which was fantastic. I mean, it made for great footage. It was fascinating to be with somebody who knew so much about Dubai and food culture and all that. We're like, what, what the hell's going on? And we go into this tiny little cupboard of a cafe and sit down and these things are prepared for us and the legend goes and i've been able to to at least get consistent representation of this legend is that they were created by uh school kids in dubai in the in the 80s and it is it is so beautiful in its simplicity and kind of gnarliness it's a a, a parata like a you know the the fluffy mm-hmm. flatbread with scrambled eggs in it, uh, those hyper-processed craft singles, believe it mm-hmm. or not, uh, hot sauce, uh, and then the the pièce de résistance is these crisps from Oman that have to be this very specific brand and flavor. They're quite spicy, almost like a like a spicy barbecue chip, and you. 
you you know break them all up into crumbs and you sprinkle them onto the egg and the cheese and the um, the hot sauce and everything. Sometimes it's like a mayo or bechamel. You roll it up and you put it into like a panini press for 30 seconds or whatever and then it's pre- presented to you. And it was just so freaking good. It's like the the Dubai version of a bacon and egg sandwich or mm. a breakfast burrito or or whatever, you know, it's just so cheap and grab and go and simple. It is exactly what you would expect a, a school kid to like, oh, you know what would be amazing in this is some chips and then, you know, crisps. And they just did it. For Greg and I still, I mean, we it. went there in like five years ago, four years ago, five years ago probably. And we still talk about it like regularly because it was that life changing. Would you, so two questions. Because this is wonderful because parathas are, you know, Indian scrambled eggs are, you know, more of a European style thing. Uh, American craft singles, American, obviously, the chips from Omani. Was the hot sauce local style hot sauce or was it like Mexican style hot sauce? You know what? I I don't know what we had on ours, but I've seen when I looked up recipes and things like that, a lot of people were pointing towards Tabasco. Uh, but so it's, so it's that sort of peppery, um, yeah. vinegary, mm-hmm. uh, and you get it with a, with a, some Arabic coffee or, or whatever. Uh, and it was, oh, it was so good. It was so, so the other, the other question is, do you think that, that the, the Calbi hot paprika chips would be able to like be a good analog? Yeah, I think so. I think so. I think anything like that, anything like that would work well. And now. I reckon you could create a reasonably serviceable stand-in with those uh, nan I found. I talked about in the last episode that I found at Costco: scramby mm-hmm. eggs, craft slices, the you know the calbi. Actually, the calbi is a good shout. Actually, um, those and either some. I reckon you could do it with like any Mexican hot sauce, even Frank's. It would be, I think, just mm-hmm. you know. And you're like, great, I'm gonna have heartburn and diarrhea for the rest of the day. But I'm totally okay with that, you know. We should do an episode to- or at least a section talking about hot sauces because you know the show Hot Ones is brilliant. Um, and Alton Brown's episode, if you've never watched, it, is amazing. He just destroys everybody. But um, the just of different variations in hot sauce. Like I'm a, I'm a vinegar hot sauce guy, but I also do like my sort of you know sriracha style when it's like more of a paste um no i'm with you too i like them i like the the vinegar franks type um, yeah uh cholula and uh yeah another one. Oh, i have every variety of cholula somewhere in my pantry <laughs> that i use on the regular um when i'm but... feeling saucy oh god uh, <laughs> i used to be the king of the bad jokes now yeah, don't take my position on everybody um, but yeah, I think that that's a good one to sort of like finish like the food section on. And, and I think that it's sort of representative of what Dubai is right now. Um, but obviously a lot of people that we, who are listeners of ours, um, have been to Dubai. So let us know what food you're eating there. Like, yeah, let us know like when you've had the most baller ass, like crazy meal that you've ever had with bubbles and gold um which is cool but also like when you got off the beaten track i did i still have a tough time watching old bourdain stuff but i did um watch uh from one of his episodes in dubai where he gets taken to a southeast asian or sorry south uh, south asian sort of indian sri lankan fish shack on in old dubai in um yeah, my wife just dropped something very loud um <laughs> I hope everything's okay. Um, 
And they they just give you fright. Hope it wasn't the baby. It wasn't. It was metal. Unless my child is the Terminator. Um, <laughs> fried um, fish and like it's been curried and then just deep fried and that looked amazing. amazing. And so that's really really. I, I hope that place is still going because it had been going for thirty years when he made the episode. Um, but yeah, let us know what you guys are eating, what you folks are eating when you're in Dubai. I have a lot of friends who live in Dubai. Unfortunately, they bleeding into that sort of. Um, cliche of the the more well-off expat who's come there to be in finance, which is where they're making a lot of their money now. Um, but I wanted to get onto the, the the drink a little bit more because unlike our previous episodes, where no offense, Australia, Belgium, and Croatia, but you're all lushes. Um, you like <laughs> to have uh, you're you're well known for being drinkers. Um, that's just not the case in Dubai for the most most part. Yes, there are bars. Yes, you can drink. Yes, it's not illegal to drink, but for a national dish, a drink, it was never going to be an alcoholic beverage. Uh, and you actually mentioned the drink when you were talking about the, the Lukma, the um, and also probably the, the breakfast coffee, the breakfast mm-hmm. uh, um, meal. But it's 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 gawa, the gawi, gawa. Uh, the, it's mm-hmm. the Arabic coffee, which is so not only from like we think that coffee in America is a ritualized thing. This is like to the next level. This is ceremonial. This is done at business meetings this is done you know to start like uh any sort of respect and ceremonial process bringing people into your house kind of thing there will be arabic coffee yeah absolutely and do you know what it is it is a intangible cultural heritage of arab states oh really so back to our old friend intangible intangibility yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's because of all, of all the things that you just said. Do you, it's do you su- like it? Such a because it's very different I love than normal, it. normal coffee. It, it is. Um, I do love it. I do love it. Um, that's one of the things I love f- about flying on on Emirates and Oman Air. Actually, when you when you, on, on in boarding uh, in business class, uh, instead of getting the champagne when you board, you would get an Arabic coffee, which is served in a in a little small. Uh, uh, ramekin-y type, almost sort of the, the, the volume of a shot glass, but slightly mm. broader. And some dates, of course. Dates are um, throughout the, the Middle East. And I love it. Yeah, no, I do. It's, it's, it's absolutely delicious. It's, you, you, you need to drink it in, in very small yeah. uh, servings because it's very strong. Very bitter and, and often flavored with cardamom, cloves, and cinnamon. Um, it, mm-hmm. From what I understand, it's not filtered, so it it's no. Got... So you it, there's a little bit of a texture. Yep, yep. Um, I think it's fair to say it, well, it's worth mentioning that you know we have strong family ties to uh, the region. You mentioned Oman Air, um, and both our grandfather and our father have both lived in Oman for for a time. And you went to visit dad in in, in Oman for a while. Yeah, a few times. Um, yeah, yeah. So they're they're. Well, I'm sure you drank a lot of. I, I, you know, as you mentioned, it's the coffee is of the region. So I'm sure you drank a lot of this coffee in Oman as well. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I, I do, I do like it. And I, whenever I can get a decent version of it, when I'm not in the Middle East, I, I go for it. Um, but you're right. You know, it's not filtered. It's boiled. So you, you take it black. It does have that, that, that sometimes the, for me, the most consistent flavoring is the cardamom, which I, which I like. I like a lot. I like cardamom. Except when I'm having a curry and I'm eating some rice and 
I forget that it's in there and take a big bite out of it. And I'm like, oh, God. Yes. <laughs> and then the star anise, yeah. yeah. The star anise is worse because that, like, gets sharp. Um, yeah. I think my wife had to go to the hospital. Not hospital. I had to go to the urgent care once because she ate uh, some star anise and it got caught in her throat, <laughs> which is not Oof. fun. Yeah. Because no, that's that like a freaking, like, a hard woody seed. Um, yeah. But, yeah, back to the coffee. It, it's, um, you know, as I mentioned, it's got strong Bedouin links. It, it really does – it's a i don't want to say ancient because it's not that old but like it is a very established part of that whole region and the bedouins moved around within the entire different arab states which was why it makes sense and the ritualized nature of of the coffee of arabic coffee is so uh pervasive throughout saudi arabia oman you know dubai qatar bahrain wherever else you want to go so you'll be able to find it wherever you go but yeah they're not going to have an alcoholic beverage uh as their national dish and i kind of like that um coffee that gets you going in the morning gets dubai going to to what it is right now so yeah i think that's uh the long and the short obviously we've you know there's a lot we didn't cover off on and this is sort of our approximation of a very complex city state um yeah, Anything and consider that Dubai mention? is on, well, all of the UAE is uh, on the on the Gulf. So there is some very, very good and interesting seafood. But it's just more of this this culture of a, what is relatively new, a new place that's, uh, I think, so fascinating to the both of us. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, yeah, next, if we can keep up with this, uh, this blazing pace, is, uh, is E. I don't want to be do, an interesting one. I don't want to do the obvious one. I don't want to do English. Yeah, I don't want to do the place of our Alex made a very Well, you've very, got some We got there's some amazing ones like East Eritrea, Timor? East Timor, uh Egypt, Ethiopia, Ethiopia. Eswatini. Yeah. is interesting cuz you know they changed their names. Um El Salvador. Uh Alex made a very good point when I said let's not do a bunch of Europe episodes and then Alex goes England's not in Europe. So like, <laughs> burn. Yeah. Oh, England. Um, but yes, if you have any strong feelings, let us know what the E episode should be. Um, there are some interesting ones out there. And yes, throw are. some ones out there. Like we've already had a really strong case made for a letter long way down the alphabet, but people are already pitching for their countries uh, and giving us some insider tips. Uh, we're not above a bribe. So if you want your country mentioned, uh, let us know. Yeah. <laughs> I, I want to know what people think and uh, not just for E, as you say, but for the rest of the alphabet, make your claim. Exactly. Sell us. <laughs> so this is, I'm, this is actually in season two, my favorite part of the whole episode until next time. Well, come on. Like, for, here's the thing. I I, pink, I pinged my friend who is from Bahrain, and she said that she'll get back to me on how to, like, break it down to pronounce properly, and she never got back to me. So, until next time, Fischtachtik? Fischtachtika, yeah. Not yeah, Fischtachtika. Okay. I don't I, think my version was any better, but there you are. Cheers. Cheers. It means good luck. So, that works. Until next time. Arabic is not my language, man. It's hard.